Good morning. <clears throat> you guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Are you guys like me that the Thanksgiving went by way too fast, huh? It's like, wow, just here, gone. Now we head into Christmas, but I love this time of the year. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 6 and then 12 through 20. This is our vintage Jesus teaching series, The Jesus Most People Miss. Today, we're answering the question, did, did he rise from death? No one is more loved or hated than Jesus Christ, yet those who dare to look beyond the prejudices, the biases, and encounter the historical, vintage, biblical Jesus are never, ever the same. Scripture is clear that the resurrection of Jesus is both a matter of fact and faith. It is a historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but for the fact to be of any benefit to our lives, we must put our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's the thesis, should be there on your notes. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a historical fact, but can and should be a daily reality of faith, powerfully transforming every part of our lives. Big statement, big statement. Not just fact, but out of that fact, so it should be, as we, as we walk through, by the way, did you take a glance at those notes? A little overwhelmed by all those uh, notes? We've got 29 points to make this morning. Believe me, we'll get through the first uh, probably 19 of them really quickly. Uh, I wanted to overwhelm you. Are you overwhelmed? So I, I wanted you to be a little overwhelmed at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we want to spend most of our time on the second part of that. But uh, a lot of evidence, both biblical evidence and circumstantial evidence. But let me read the thesis statement again here. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a historical fact, but can and should be a daily reality of faith, powerfully transforming every part of our lives. So fact, so fact, the, the evidence of the resurrection, it's a, it's a historical fact, minus faith, so if you don't engage your faith, if you don't put your faith in the person and work of Christ and what he came to accomplish, that's just dead orthodoxy. You're just going through the motions. You're just checking the church box. Faith minus fact. So you have kind of a general belief, but it's not really founded in God's word. There's no foundation for it. So faith minus fact is just wishful thinking. But faith plus fact is powerfully transforming. As some of the dead theologians would say, it's logic on fire in our hearts, and it transforms our lives. That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's begin with a word of prayer, then we'll read through our text and unpack these notes. Father God, we thank you that the Christian faith isn't a blind leap into a dark chasm, but a step into the light, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only a historical fact, but can and should be a daily reality of faith powerfully transforming every part of our lives. Open our eyes to wonderful things from your word. May these truths about our glorious and gracious Savior not just be clear to our minds, but real to our hearts so that we can experience more and more of the fullness of life he came to give to us for your glory and our indomitable joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text, wonderful text, uh, chapter 15, written by the Apostle Paul, who was quite antagonistic towards the Christian faith in his early years, if you're familiar with his story. 
and he persecuted Christians and encountered Christ on the road to where? Damascus, and he was never the same. So he encountered the resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was never the same. This chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is, is pretty profound, and he's giving argumentation, logic, and reasoning for the resurrection of Christ. The furthest, furthest thing that he would ever think that he would believe until he encountered the resurrected Savior and it revolutionized his life. Let's pick up our reading in verse 3, chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the first piece of evidence that he gives us here is the empty tomb. The tomb is empty. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And then he moves on from, so he's given us argumentation for the resurrection. He starts with empty tomb, and then he goes to eyewitnesses. Not only was the tomb empty, but there were eyewitnesses, verse 5, and he appeared to Cephas. Anybody? Who's Cephas? Peter. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that interesting? What did Peter do before, during the whole crucifixion process? What was that? He denied him how many times? And guess who Jesus shows up? to first meet after his resurrection. I love that. Is he indeed a redeemer or what? He comes to redeem him and restore him. So when we blow it, we mess up, he's there to pick us up and love on us, get us back on track. And so there's, you got Cephas, then to the 12, these are eyewitnesses, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Oh, by the way, that fallen asleep, what is he talking about there? They fall asleep. Wake them up. No, he's speaking of death. That's what I love about the Bible. It refers to death for believers. Oh, just took a nap. How many took a nap after Thanksgiving meal? How many couldn't take a nap because you had too much family around, right? Yeah, it's kind of rude that you just kind of go to sleep right after you ate that big meal while you have family around. But, but that's what it's referring to. Referring to death as, as just falling asleep. And, and in fact, so he's giving us empty tomb, eyewitnesses. In fact, he's even saying, hey, some of those folks are still alive. Go and talk to them. They encountered the resurrected Savior. And then, and then you can read it on your own. The rest of the next few verses, he talks about the changed lives. So empty tomb, eyewitnesses, changed lives, all part of this argu- argumentation, logic, reasoning for the resurrection of Christ. Jump down to verse 12. And so he talks about what difference it will make in our lives. This is the change that it brings. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So apparently there were those that were saying, oh, there's no resurrection of the dead. And they're saying, wait, 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 wait. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So what are you talking about? That's part of our, our Christian doctrine, verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, he's going to give argumentation for the mind. This is more of the intellectual that he's coming at. This is how it will transform us if we really begin to understand uh, the resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is is vain, is in vain. It's empty. So why are you even preaching? So it's... So if that didn't happen, then why are we even preaching? Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now he gives us emotional argument. 
Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That's the emotional side. The first one is more of an intellectual argument. This is now more of an emotional, that you're still, you still have guilt and shame. That's not erased in your life. We're doomed. And then verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if this is the end and we're just following Christ just until our life is over and it's gone and that's it, that's crazy. That doesn't make sense. And then verse 20 is where we'll end our reading. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Now, so he gives us the empty tomb, eyewitness, changed lives, and then he talks about, in fact, you can, uh, if you read further on maybe this afternoon, verse 32, he gives us the third piece of argument there where he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. So he's giving a, a, an argument for the will, for your volition. So what he's saying here, empty tomb, eyewitnesses, change lives. How does it change our life? If you begin to embrace the resurrection of Christ, it will change the way you think, the way you feel, the way you live. All three of those areas of your life, it will change every aspect of your life. In fact, the, the argument that he's making here is that if the resurrection is true, it's all true. If the resurrection isn't true, none of it's true. We're wasting our time. That's his argument. And I personally believe it's true. Not only do I believe that it's a, it's a matter of fact, it's historical, evidential, factual, but it's also a matter of faith that I have encountered personally the resurrected Savior and he has transformed my life. And you're sitting around many that have experienced the same right here this morning. And so it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely amazing. This logic, as I said, logic on fire. Now, let's talk about the resurrection as a matter of fact. There's biblical evidence, there's circumstantial evidence. We need to knock this out in, in at least uh, 15 minutes, okay? So we're gonna knock this section out, we're gonna run through it fast. I didn't give you very many fill in the blanks, and so, but I want you to, to be somewhat overwhelmed by all the evidence here. First of all, the biblical evidence, it was prophesied in advance, close to 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah 53, Old Testament, Isaiah 53, 8 through 12, predicted his birth, death, and resurrection. So it was predicted, and we talked about this as part of the evidence of Scripture, so it was predicted way in advance. Number two, Jesus predicted his resurrection. Over and over again, he kept telling his disciples, though they didn't get it until it was all said and done, and they looked back on it, but he kept telling his disciples over and over again. I got many of the references right there, Matthew, Mark, and in John. And then number three, Jesus died on the cross. Now, why is that so important? Because there's a lot of different uh, theories to try to refute what he accomplished on the cross and the fact that he did resurrect from the grave. And one of them is the swoon theory. Anybody familiar with the swoon theory? It's, it's really a dumb theory because it doesn't really make any sense. And what it just basically says, and that's the reason why it's important to understand that he did die on the cross because they said, well, he didn't actually die. He just kind of passed out for a little bit and then he kind of revived himself in the tomb. And I'd like to know how in the world did he even move that big stone because it was a huge stone to, to move away from the grave. And, and there's a num number of other uh, factors too uh, that would dispute that. But he actually died. You got reference of it there in John 19, 34 through 35. Number four, Jesus was buried in a tomb that was easy to find because there's another argument that they went to the wrong tomb. 
The tomb was empty because they went to the wrong place. And the, the Bible's pretty clear that, that that's not the case. Uh, it was easy to find. Number five, Jesus appeared physically alive three days after his death. You got uh, references there in Matthew, John, Luke. Number six, Jesus' resurrection was recorded as scripture shortly after it occurred. Now, this is what's fascinating. Many historians, theologians, as they've studied this, particularly in, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark was written by who? Mark. <laughs> Just to see if you're awake. But most of the story was given to Mark by who? Anybody know? Peter. Yeah, you guys are all over it this morning. You're a little slow on the Mark thing, though, okay? <laughs> it, was, it was kind of an obvious answer, wasn't it? Like, what is, he, what is he trying to trick us here? So Mark, chapter 14, verses 53, 54, 60, 61, and 63, Mark uh, didn't mention the high priest by name because he expected his readers to know of whom he was speaking. Caiaphas was the high priest from A.D. 18 to 37, extremely close to the death of Christ. So they're saying, hey, this was, this was made public just through his writing this close to Jesus' resurrection. Number seven, Jesus' resurrection was celebrated in the earliest church creeds. We just read that creed. I think it's on your notes as 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 3, but it's actually 3 and 4. You might want to correct that there. 3 and 4 is the creed. It was widely accepted as the earliest church creed circulating as early as 3036. Let me read it again. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's all part of that Early church creed circulated as early as A.D. 30, 36. Number eight, Jesus' resurrection convinced his family to worship him as God. That's pretty astounding. You guys, and I, I gave you some of the references, but do you guys remember the times when, his, when Jesus' family showed up and they thought that he was a little bit cuckoo, crazy? You know, his uh, Jesus slid off his cracker. You know, there was a number of things, that, and so they came and thought, he's, he's kind of messed up. We're not really sure what's going on. And, and so, y you need to know this. You know, my mom and dad attend here. In fact, they're sitting right back there. And to my mom, and I'm sure to my dad too, but to my mom, I can never preach a bad message. Isn't that sweet? And so she's a sweetheart, but, but she would never confuse me with deity or being God, Okay. She would never think that I'm God. And neither would my two sisters. And you guys are looking at me like, uh, that doesn't shock you, huh? <laughs> it shocks me. No, it doesn't shock me in the least bit. But Jesus' mom worshipped Jesus as God. Is that a little odd? And how about his two brothers? Who are... Uh, a number, I guess, uh, at least two brothers that actually go on to write scripture. Who are they? Anybody? James and Jude. Isn't that? So what would it, what would it take for you to convince your siblings that you're God? How about the resurrection? Because I don't know, we didn't read the rest of it, but did you see who else he shows up to as you read on? Then he appeared to, this is verse two of our, we didn't read this part of the text, but then he appeared to James. Hi, James. Remember me? Hanging on the cross? Yeah. I mean, I mean, so it had to have shocked him. But here's what's interesting about James when you uh, study church history, is that not only does he confess his brother as the savior of the world, but he uh, 
suffers, a, um, suffers martyrdom. He dies. In fact, they take him up on the temple pinnacle and tell him that you must deny your brother as God or we're going to throw you off. And he said, no, I can't do that. And then they threw him off and he didn't die, but he busted up his extremities, particularly his legs. And then they came over and beat him to death with a pole. And he went to his death proclaiming that his brother is God, God in the flesh. That's pretty fascinating. So, so Jesus' resurrection convinced his family to worship him as God. And then number nine, Jesus' resurrection was confirmed by his most bitter enemies such as Paul. And I talked about that. Paul persecuted the church. Acts 9, we see his conversion. He was on the road to Damascus. And uh, which is fascinating, you might want to write this down and study a little bit further. Uh, Jesus is going, he's in prison, he's in jail, and he stands before King Agrippa and Governor Festus in Acts 26, and he even appeals because Governor Festus, as, as Peter is going through the resurrection process and death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and Governor Festus says, you're out of your mind, Paul. And Paul says, no, 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 this is a matter of logic. Ask uh, King Agrippa, this was not done in a corner somewhere. Everybody knows about the resurrection. So he appeals to that. It's a, it's a really valid argument. Okay, so that's the biblical evidence. Let's look at the circumstantial evidence. And you'll see on, my, on your notes there that if you don't believe in the resurrection, the burden of proof is on you to explain the overwhelming circumstantial evidence. Here's the circumstantial evidence. First of all, transformation of the disciples. In uh, John 20, 19, these guys were frightened after they saw Jesus, their Messiah, being uh, crucified on the cross. They're huddling together. They're hiding out. And they go from huddling and hiding and fearful to boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ. I mean, and even particularly Peter, who denied Christ three times, he's denying all the way to proclaiming Christ. And, and so that's pretty fascinating. In fact, in Acts 4.13, it says, when they saw the boldness of, of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they took note that they had been with Jesus, that what they were saying, wow, there's something happening here. Their lives have indeed um, been transformed. And then number two, disciples' loyalty to their Messiah. They even were so loyal to Jesus that they went to their deaths. Now, I understand people today, there are people that will certainly die for what they believe is true, but here's my argument for these guys, because another argument against Christianity and the resurrection would be that these guys made this up. And, and yet, you mean to tell me that all of these disciples went to their death, all of them died deaths of martyrdom, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nobody would do that. Not, you wouldn't have that many liars do that. At, at some point, someone's going to break and go, no. Nah. I was just lying. It's not true. I like what Blaise Pascal says. I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. I do too. And then number three, the character of the disciples. When you look at the early church, I mean, their character was transformed. They gave their lives to feeding the poor, caring for widows, orphans, and helping the hurting and needy. And by the way, let me just say this, that the, the early church didn't transform the society through politics. They weren't even actually involved in politics. I'm not saying it's not, I, I think it's a good thing to get involved in politics. We need to have good politicians. We need to stand up for what's right. I understand that, but primarily it was transformed through the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They literally turned their world upside down through that 
because they got to the root of our issues. And that was what, what happened, the character of the disciples. And then here's number four, the day of worship changed. And this is a pretty astounding. After thousands of years, they started worshiping on, the, on Sunday. Why did they start worshiping on Sunday? How come you guys weren't at church last night? That's the Sabbath. You know that, don't you? You guys should have been here. Okay. It doesn't really matter, does it? And so, but Sunday becomes the kind of the Sabbath, but it's not actually. We have, uh, uh, we can, you can actually kind of pick a day what's Sabbath, but actually every day you should live in a sense as if it's the Sabbath, although there's some specifics that you'd want to do on a Sabbath day as you withdraw from your work and really make sure that you're really established in the truth of who Jesus is because he's the one that ultimately gives us Sabbath rest. But it, it goes to Sunday because Jesus resurrected on Sunday. And this is pretty amazing for Jews to switch the Sabbath, which is a very sacred day, to Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After thousands of years, they started worshiping on Sunday, Acts 27, and then 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. And then the object of their worship, of course, is Jesus. That would be called idolatry to a Jew. You shall have no other gods before me, and yet they're saying Jesus is God. And then number six, theological changes in the church they start practicing the sacraments, communion and baptism, which represents death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They stopped observing the Old Testament ceremonial laws. And then number seven, we've talked about that this in the last few weeks, women discovering the empty tomb. And why is that so significant? Because uh, testimony of, of women was not respected in that day and time, and so they were the first ones to, to find the tomb empty, and so that's why it was written down regardless of it was being so contrary to culture. And then, uh, then the early church preaching, proclamation of the re resurrection. You see that throughout the book of Acts. And then number nine, am I going too fast? No. The tomb not enshrined. We, we do this today. You see this happen all the time. I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, I'm not too fond of it. But people will actually enshrine certain locations in town if they had a loved one uh, die there. Well, that was very common in these days. They would enshrine tombs, and so uh, the tomb was not enshrined. Very common in Jesus' day, and of course, the big one is the growth of the church, which continues to this day. And I wanted to overwhelm you with that, because I wanted you to see all of that evidence. And there's plenty more. We could spend the next year just looking at the evidence, that there's plenty of Evidence, there's plenty of evidence tilting the scale of probability beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus is who he said he is, that he came to this earth to rescue us from our sins, and on the third day he resurrected from the grave. And, uh, but it's got to be more than that. And I like what Josh McDowell said. He was an atheist trying to refute Christianity, converted to Christianity, because in one of his many books that he writes, uh, resurrection factor, he said, for me to deny the evidence that is so overwhelming, I would have to commit intellectual suicide. That's what he said. And so, but it's got to be more than that. It's got uh, to be a faith. We've got to put our faith in the personal work of Christ. Here's the next statement on your notes. Even if you can't believe in the resurrection, you should want it to be true because it's the happily ever after we all long for. What are the most popular movies, books, and stories in our culture for, for decades? Happily ever after stories. 
Those are the most popular movies still to this day. Even though there are those out there, the critics would say, yeah, but that's not reality. Yeah, it is if you're a follower of Jesus Christ because we have an happily ever after in store for us. And that's why, that's why and I think that's why they're so popular is because there's something that resonates deep within us. Listen to me. We were meant to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day and live happily ever after. But we messed that up. But Jesus came to get us back and to redeem us. That's the story of the gospel of of Jesus Christ. I like what C.S. Lewis says. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So we were made for another world. We weren't made for this broken fallen world. We were made for another world. That's why when we cry out and we see suffering and we see sin and we see all that goes on around us, our hearts cry out. That it resonates with us. That's why we like going to movies and reading books and stories that have that happily ever after. That's what we have in the resurrection. Now let's unpack this and see what it means to really put our faith in that. Number one, it is the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, I didn't read it, but it really talks about this is the foundation of our faith. The Bible is not so much, and we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, it's not so much a set of disconnected stories giving us life lessons on what we must do to be right with God. It is a single story of what God has done through his son to make us right with him. And so uh, the meta-narrative, you might say, of the scriptures, so there's a lot of little stories, I understand that, but they're all pointing to the one big story, and the one big story is creation, fall, redemption, that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, with the hope of restoration, new heavens, new earth, new body, happily ever after. See, that's the story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and resurrection. Number two, it proves that Jesus is who he said he is. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Pretty, pretty bold statement by Jesus. So he says, I am the way. So if you want a relationship with God, I am the way to that relationship with God. But I am the truth about God. You want to get to know God? Get to know me. Read through the four gospels and you'll get to know God, but also I'm the very life of God. I've come to bring to you a life that most only dream about. And, and this, is the, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, three. So I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus also said something in John 6.35. you familiar with it? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never go what? Hungry. He who believes in me will never go thirsty. Now think about that. He'll never go hungry, never go thirsty. Yeah, but I came to him. But it's, it's, it's talking about present active indicative. It's coming to him day in and day out regularly and feasting on this rich, deep, robust relationship with the creator of the universe. And he's saying, what amazing satisfaction I will give to you that nothing in this world can give to you. That's what he's saying. And so Jesus, it proves who he is. I love what uh, Tim Keller has to say about this idea. Of not only is there unbelievable satisfaction, but it's only natural and normal. You're going to want to follow him. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. 
If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Now, see, the reason why I quoted that is because I have a lot of people, I've had a lot of people come through this church have come up to me and said, I don't like what you said. I said, well, I, I said what the Bible said. He said, but I don't like it. I said, well, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. The, the fact is, is it's part of the Bible. And it's, the, the question is, did he rise from the dead? And is he really God? Because it would be folly for us not to fall down at his feet and worship him and follow him with, with our whole life if indeed he is God in the flesh and he, he was raised from the dead. Does that, doesn't that make sense? But how can we come to him and kind of pick and choose what we want to believe and not believe? The fact is, did he rise from the dead or did he not? If he did, he is God. Let's follow him with all of our heart. I mean, that's the only logical, rational, and, and I, I came to that fork in the road back in my high school years. And I, I said, is he really truly God? And I came to the conclusion, yes. <laughs> the evidence is overwhelming. And as I begin to engage him and encounter him even more so than I had it even before, oh my goodness, I've never been the same. I absolutely love it. I'm getting to be an old dude too. And it's getting better for me. I mean, I'm just loving this more and more. I can hardly wait until I come face to face with my Savior. And so, and I believe that's what, what it's all about here. Here's the third. It is God stamping paid in full on our sins, for our sins. Did you notice in, the, in that little creed that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures? Verse 3. He died for our sins. And so, of course, it talks about the resurrection. After a criminal does his time in jail and fully satisfies the sentence, the law has no claim on him and he walks out free. We've seen that. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins, walked out free on Easter Sunday, having fully satisfied the sentence. That's what that means, the resurrection. Paid in full, fully satisfying the sentence. Not just forgiveness of sins and ticket to heaven, it's much more than that. In fact, we talked about it last week. See if the people were paying attention last weekend about it's more than, so justification is more than just as if we've never sinned before. It's much more than that. What is it? Turn to the person next to you, see if they remember from what we talked about last week. Real quick. Okay, how many remember me talking about that last week? Okay, like three of us in here. I shouldn't even have asked you that question. I just need to keep pounding it in you, week in and week out. You probably, you don't remember that at all. That hurts my feelings. I'm used to that though, okay. I'm, I'm just like you. It takes me a while to really latch on. So justification is more than forgiveness of sins. It's more than a ticket to heaven. Remember what we said in the little statement? It said, forgiveness of sins is more like you may go. You're, never, you're no longer re reliable. You're, you're no longer um, the penalty. You have no more condemnation upon you. It, you may go. But really, justification is much more than that. You may come. It's an invitation into all of his love and presence. <laughs> I love it. That's my favorite. Yeah, I love the fact that I'm forgiven of my sins, but mostly because he invites me in to be his child. 
And I have access into the throne room to experience all of who God is, his love and presence. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. 1 John 3, 1. It's amazing. I love it. You guys aren't as excited as I am. It is. There's a few of us that are pretty excited about that. That's some rich stuff. I know you're still trying to work off all that turkey you ate. Uh, I just ate too much this last week. I just, uh, hey, this is so much better than all the turkey and dressing and pie you could ever eat. This is a feast right here. And so that takes us to the next point here. It means that we can enter the Holy of Holies. <laughs> Mark 15, 38. Okay, so, so in the temple... There's different sections of the temple, and one of the sections was this place called the Holy of Holies, and the high priest could only go into this place, into this area, once a year, and they'd put bells on the bottom of his robe, and they'd scrub him inside and out, and they'd put bells on the bottom of his robe and tie a rope around his foot. Why would they do that? Because they were afraid that if he wasn't like perfect in every way, he would be what? Uh, he would be struck dead, and nobody dare go in there, so they would drag him out if they didn't hear the bells ringing anymore. Doesn't that sound interesting? This is the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. So what happened during the cross, the crucifixion and resurrection? What happened with the veil? Torn from where? Top to bottom. Nobody could do that. God did it. And it was almost as if, as if he's saying, hey, now you can come into this most holy place. Awe and intimacy. Now, there was a verse that I came across this last week in my studies, Hebrews 10, 19. He says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What are these holy places? What is this holy of holies? I think it's awe and intimacy with God, unlike you've ever experienced before. I don't want to be too crass here, but listen, there's no sexual relationship out there that compares to this. There's no amount of money. There's no carnival ride. There's no uh, pie that you can eat, food that you enjoy. There's no drug that you can take. Listen to me. That can, com that can even come close to this holy of holies, this encounter with God, this knowing the living God and experiencing him deep in your heart awe and intimacy, and he invites us. This is what the resurrection gives us, that we can come into this place, the holy of holies, and experience God. I was thinking of, there's so many verses that help me with this, but Psalm 84, listen to what the psalmist says. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And then you guys are familiar with this. There's a song was a song on that one, but also on this one, 8410. One day in your courts is like a what? Yeah. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. All the riches in this world does not compare. Does not compare. This is fascinating. I, I just begin to reflect on that and think about that. And so let me ask you this. When was the last time that you had a sense that you were in this place called the Holy of Holies and you realize that you have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ? You see, Pharisee types think that they earn it by their obedience. Guilt-ridden 
types think that they have lost it because of their disobedience, but this is by God's grace. It's a done deal. We can experience this. We can enter into this. Now, I think our busyness, our crazy busy lifestyle, sound familiar? Talked about that at the first of this year, but because we're so crazy busy with our lifestyle, I think we've got so many distractions. How often do you take out time to enter into that that holy place, just you and God, and you encounter him and you know him? Oh, my goodness, there's nothing more satisfying. I think it's incomparable. I think there's, it's beyond comparison. Nothing compares, nothing competes, and nothing will complete you. You want to be more complete? It's right there. It's found in this holy of holies. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Okay, next one, number five. It means we have his resurrection power within us. So out of that holy of holies, this encounter with God, I've always been quite intrigued with Romans 8, 11, where it says, uh, it says, if the spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, it's almost kind of like a matter of fact. Oh, by the way, you do know this. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you if you put your faith in Jesus. It's like, what? Really? You gotta be kidding. And the spirit, the spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. He will make alive your mortal bodies. And he's just saying, wow. Unbelievable what you can experience in and through your life. Ephesians 1, 19 through 20, Paul is praying that they will get a hold of this. He says, talks about them understanding the eyes of their heart would be enlightened to a number of things, and one of those is this immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So what is the measure of that power? He goes on, he says, it's the resurrection, that power working for us and in us and through us. Now, Quick illustration here. I don't know if you guys have been watching the news, but the past couple weeks, the whole Ferguson, uh, Ferguson debacle and all of this stuff. How many are familiar with what I'm talking about there? Ferguson, Missouri, and what, what went on there in, where the uh, police officer shot and killed a young black man, and then this, I think it was just this last week or a week ago, uh, he, didn't, he wasn't indicted by the grand jury. And then riots break out all over in Ferguson. And then there's riots all over the United States. So here's, here's how this affects me. I'm like, what the heck is wrong with these people? I know maybe you had the same experience, but I was like, what? what? These people are a bunch of morons, you know? Excuse my language. But, uh, but anyway, I'm, like, I'm thinking, wow, these people are idiots. What the heck? Don't they even, I mean, you got to try to trust our justice system. They did the best they can. They're playing armchair quarterback and so on, you know, and I probably watched too much news and, um, and all that was going on. And so then uh, I, I'm a little bit ticked off about it and I show up to my small group and I share with one of the guys that's in my small group and he says, hey, uh, he says, you remember what happened back uh, when the Amish in 2006, when they had that gunman that came in that one uh, room schoolhouse and shot 10 little girls, ages 6 to 13, killing five of them, and then he committed suicide. Do you remember how they responded? I go, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then he showed me a video on his computer, and it was of the, of the mom of the perpetrator that went in and shot these girls, and she was devastated what happened 
at the hands of her son, and she was going to leave the community. And these Amish families came over to her house and said, oh, please do not leave the community. We love you. We forgive your son. And they began to rally around her and even went to her son's funeral and consoled them. I was blown away. And I began to realize, don't become like the evil that is being done to you don't be overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. That's, that's what it tells us in Romans 12, 21. So I was almost kind of becoming like that evil that these guys were perpetrating out there. They were mad, and I'm mad at them because they're mad, and I'm mad at them. I'm ticked off because they're idiots. And God's saying, wait, 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 time out. You don't get rid of evil by being evil. You get rid of evil by overcoming evil with good. I was... I was blown away. And initially, I kind of pushed back. I said, well, it's not the same. Well, guess what? It's still evil, regardless of how you want to look at it one way or the other. It's still evil. So how are you going to respond to the evil in your life? I believe the only way that you can do that, why are we talking about resurrection? I think that's resurrection power. I think the Amish understood it and had resurrection power working in their lives because that's how, when you have the resurrection power of God living within you, working in you, you can even forgive your enemies. You can love your enemies. I've experienced it personally in my own life. I've loved people that otherwise I despised. And God worked in my life in such a way that I began to love them. So what trial, what difficulty are you facing? Do you think it's beyond the resurrection power working in you? What temptation keeps trapping you? It's not beyond the power of his resurrection working in your life. I mean, I was just, that was a good lesson for me this last week as I began to work through my own issues in that. I, I appreciated, the, and that's why small groups are really important. In my own, I've got a couple different small groups that I'm a part of, and boy, that was really beneficial to me. And so it, it means we have his resurrection power within us. And then it means no death for us. No death for us. John eleven twenty five. You familiar with that text? Eleven twenty five. Remember, he's showing up to his friend's death, Lazarus, and guess who comes out to meet him? Martha. And so this is what he says to Martha. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes. That's what he's saying. It's powerful. And he also uses that whole idea, oh, Lazarus just fall asleep. His disciples go, he's fallen asleep. Let's just go wake him up. No, no, no. <laughs> he didn't fall asleep like that. He's fallen asleep. He's dead. That's what he said. He, actually, in that context, that's what he says. That's where we get that whole idea of falling asleep. And, uh, and so he says that we will never die. It means no death for us. The resurrection means no death for us. I'll never forget this. In fact, his, uh, his widow was here last night sitting right back here. Barb Stallings, and uh, I, I had been out of relationship with them for a while. They were part of the early days of Desert Breeze, kind of helping us with this church. We had some conflict. We parted ways. They went out and planted a church. We had some tension. I thought we had worked through it. He was on his deathbed, Dave Stallings. He told his son that he wanted to see me. And I'm thinking, so his son, Brad, calls me up, says, hey, my dad wants to see you. We think he's going to die in the next day or so. I go, what? What does he want to see me for? I'm thinking, man, did I not resolve all of that? And I'm thinking, I'm a little bit frightened by, the, by going there. So I asked my wife to go with me. 
And I'll never forget it. I showed up in that room and there was a smile on this guy's face bigger than I've ever seen before. So I'm kind of walking in a little bit intimidated, wondering, what is this about? He's got this big smile. He goes, come on over here. Listen to me. Don't be sad for me. I'm moments away from coming face to face with the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without me. I'm going to be in his arms shortly. I was like, whoa. He says, get over here. I'm going to pray for you and Desert Breeze. The dude ministered to me unbelievably. I walked out of that room on cloud nine. He died the next day. The funeral was phenomenal. And I'll never be the same as a result of that encounter that I had with this guy. On his deathbed, he went from, you know, his last breath on earth, first breath in heaven in the arms of his Savior. See, that's the promise that we have. That's the promise that we have through the resurrection. It's phenomenal. We don't have to fear death. And uh, I was just flat out, I was blown away. And then here's the next one, number seven. It means we can be bold and take greater risks with our lives for Christ. We don't need to cling to this life because we have the life to come. So, so we can risk, you know, we can be radically generous with our time and our talent and our, and our treasure. That's why in Mark 8, Jesus said, if you try to hang on to this life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you're going to find it. Acts 4, 13, they saw the boldness of Peter and John, realized that, wow, these people, these guys have been with Jesus. 1526, talking about Paul and Barnabas, it actually says in Acts 1526, these are men who have risked their lives for the sake of Christ. And then number eight, it is the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. Do you ever get those moments that when you're looking out over the, the landscape of this earth? Wow, that's breathtaking. We have some phenomenal sunsets, but Nancy and I were headed up to Prescott. You know when you take Prescott and you go into Prescott Valley, you don't go through all the stoplights, but if you go on the outskirts, there's kind of a freeway that takes you out there. And it was one of those days when the clouds were low, the sun was coming, kind of breaking through across those mountains and those meadows. Oh, my goodness, it was breathtaking. I had one of those moments where the, I knew the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. I began to think of, of the fact of, that this place is pretty spectacular in its fallen state. I can only imagine how much more wonderfully spectacular it will be brand new. And then number nine, it is the promise of new minds, hearts, and bodies. Ooh, I love that one. Brand new bodies. Real quick, let me ask you this. How many remember a time when you looked and felt much better than you do now? Show of hands. How many don't even remember that far back, okay? Your mind's kind of shot because you're just too many birthdays, okay? Now, if you're in your teens and 20s and early 30s, you don't even know what I'm talking about. But you will. It's just a matter of time. We're going to get new bodies. The rest of this chapter 15 talks about those new bodies. They're imperishable. Now, let me give you another metaphor. I've got a couple more metaphors I'm going to help you uh, kind of walk through. But let me just say this. Uh, this metaphor is how many have ever had a nightmare? Show of hands. When I was a young uh, kid in my home, I had reoccurring nightmares. Remember that, Mom? I'd wake up. I was out of control. I was crazy. And the, the crazy nightmare, and I, I remember to this day, the, the nightmare was this train coming through and killing all of my family. Oh, that's a nice, pleasant nightmare. No, it isn't. It shook me up. It was recurring. But here's the interesting thing about it. 
is that when I was, when my mom or somebody would wake me up, all that was sad and bad was untrue and became even more glorious for having been broken and lost. In other words, did I appreciate my family that much more after that? Oh, absolutely. See, I, I happen to believe that the resurrection, I, I wrote it down like this, the resurrection is the foundation of our hope, confident, joyful expectation that everything bad and sad in this world will one day be untrue and be all the more glorious for having once been broken and lost. I believe we're gonna wake up from this nightmare and we're gonna be in the arms of our Savior and we're gonna go, wow, what a crazy nightmare. And he says, yeah, that was light and momentary compared to what I have in store for you. New heavens, new earth, new body. I love it. Here's the last point. Last one. Hey, we did pretty decent, didn't we? <laughs> it means our bad things will work for our good. Our good things can never be lost. And the best things are yet to come. I've got it written down there. You can study this in Romans 8, 28 through 30. And yeah, we're sorrowful but always rejoicing as it tells us in in 2 Corinthians 6.8, yeah, there, there's, there's sorrow in this world. There's no doubt about it. We don't want to deny it. We have to grieve, grieve that. But in the midst of that, there is a joy. There's a hope that we hang on to. And you can see my last statement. This is one of my favorite metaphors. You've heard it before. It really talks about poker, playing poker. When you have the winning hand, not only are you all in, we have the winning hand. I just gave it to you, all the evidence, all the facts. When you have the winning hand, winning hand push all your chips in. I'm in. You're all in, but you're not uptight or nervous as you just enjoy the game. That, that, that should be the way we live it out. How many play poker? How many have ever played poker? Show of hands, show of hands. Y'all are going to hell. Okay? No, you're not. But, but you know that whole game. Now, I'm not very good at playing poker cards or anything because I don't have that poker, poker face. When I get a good hand, it's like, hey, is this a good hand? They go, yeah, that's a great hand. How did you get that? It's like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, I don't have a poker face. Neither should you have a poker face. We have a winning hand. We have a winning hand. We can enjoy the game. Yeah, there's sorrow, there's difficulties, but underneath all of that, there's amazing joy. Bad things will work for our good. Truly good things cannot be taken from us. His presence, his power, his peace, and the best is yet to come. Our happily ever after that we long for is ours through the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. God, we love you. We love you. We are amazed. The truth of your word that brings life to our lives and hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a historical fact, but can and should be a daily reality of faith, powerfully transforming our lives. The gospel is the ultimate story that shows victory coming out of defeat and life coming out of death. And so God, it proves that Jesus is who he said he is, stamping paid in full. We are invited into all of your love in presence, that holy of holies, your resurrection power within us. We don't need to fear death. We can take more risk with our lives for you as we have the promise of a new heavens, a new earth, new body. God, thank you, thank you, God, for the winning hand that you have given us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you.